Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, one year later. What are the consequences of that assault on democracy? And could it happen again? We'll hear from legendary Washington Post reporter Dan Balls and a former FBI agent on what signs were missed or not acted upon one year ago. Meanwhile, disinformation persists, and many in the Republican Party still believe the lie that the election was stolen. We'll hear from one of them. Plus, should there be consequences for spreading those lies? Also, after 16 years, the King County prosecutor is calling it quits, and Seattle charts a new course at City Hall. But first, the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol was a culmination of missed red flag warnings as well as inflammatory disinformation by foreign adversaries as well as some domestic media outlets and politicians. Plenty of warnings, though, and apparently... The Capitol Police and other law enforcement agencies didn't heed those warnings. Joining me now is Brad Garrett. He is the ABC News crime and terrorism analyst from Washington, D.C. And I guess the first question I would put to you, what exactly were those signs that were missed leading up to the attack on January 6th? So I think to clarify, I'm not sure any signs were missed. I clearly think that things weren't implemented. I mean, the number of things that law enforcement to include FBI, Department of Homeland Security, uh, it goes on and on. They saw a lot of red flags. They were concerned about uh, social media hits where people are talking about how to smuggle guns into the Capitol, who to arrest or capture, in effect, after they get into the Capitol. Where is Vice President Pence? Where will he be? I mean, it sort of goes on and on about organized caravans coming to D.C., which ended up being true. Um, So, I think that the intel was there. It's just for whatever reason, A, the Capitol Police decided not to act on it, or there's another angle here. Were they told not to have big-time security because nobody wanted the appearance of that? I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just talking from an analyst standpoint that that, none of it made sense to me. They didn't have a level of security based on the threat level that day. Um, and, you know, where else can you go other than so they were told that they could only do what they did that day? I don't know. We'll have to see. One of the things that seems to come up over and over again, we saw it 20 years ago in 9-11, and, and we're seeing it now, is this lack of information sharing between agencies. Was that a problem? If I don't think so. Uh, all I can tell you is this, that the FBI has what they call a joint terrorism task force. Uh, D.C. has one. Every major city has one. You have one where you are. And there are multi-agency in, in the D.C. version of it. The Capitol Police sit. They have the clearances. They sit uh, in the squad area at the Washington Field Office of the FBI. They hear all the intelligence the FBI hears in reference to this kind of stuff and other stuff. Um, so I don't know that stuff was missed. Do I think people chose at some level, I'm not suggesting that even law enforcement made this call, to not have security at the level it should have been? I just don't know. That's the real missing piece that in Congress's investigation, we'll see if they can actually get to the bottom of that. In other words, were there conversations between the president and Republican leaders on the Hill? I don't know. Uh, But this has to be figured out because it's such it was such a catastrophe it just really can't happen again 
But as, as we've been looking at it, it, it seems like this can happen again because not much has changed. Yeah, no, I'm not suggesting it can happen again. It just shouldn't happen again. But the, the point being is that, yes, are the Capitol Police maybe better prepared? Uh, do they have a better plan? Are they really focused on what do we really do if we have this many people show up um, on the Capitol grounds? I, I, do, I do think that's probably better. It's probably not perfect. I think it's a slow moving train to get it to where it needs to be. But let's face it. People who commit acts like this tend to try to find softer targets. So if, in fact, we have something else, don't necessarily expect it will happen at the U.S. Capitol. The other thing that just seems surprising to me about this is the people that attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th weren't shy about it. They were filming themselves. They were posting it on social media. Generally, you don't see that. No. You don't, but I think what you have here, Jeff, is people who believe they were righteous, that they were told to go do what they did by the president. And so as a result, it would be like, I realize this is a weird reality statement. It would be like, you know, you, you take your kids to the zoo you or to a carnival, you may do a live stream or you might take pictures of yourself. I mean, that was the flavor I had, but they felt totally justified because the commander in chief told them to go do it in their mind. Um, and that's why I think you have all that social media stuff. They think they thought they'd just be fine. And and so what have we seen as far as prosecution of these individuals? I mean, the justice department has spent a year dealing with this. So they've charged over 700 people. They say they got 300 plus to go, you know, keep in mind that identifying people has not been easy. This has basically been something where uh, you're trying to figure out people's identity after the fact. Yes, they've gotten a lot of tips. Yes, they pulled every cell phone that was working within the proximity of the Capitol last January 6th. So they were able to ID people that way. Probably some facial recognition. I don't know. But it's, it's taken a while to figure out who's. And there are some people they still haven't figured out. And add to that, you still have members of the Republican Party, elected members of Congress and many state legislatures that really don't feel anything wrong happened on the 6th. Right. And then there's that, you know, which is another, you know, alternative reality that some people are living in about what this was and and was not. Uh, and, And yes, that is a huge problem. I mean, how would you like to be a Capitol Police officer and provide security on people to think that's, I guess, okay to beat up police officers and harm them. And some of them are permanently physically and mentally damaged because of what happened. I mean, I don't know what planet you're on to say that's okay, but you're right. There are people that are really putting in a big denial on what it really was. So bottom line, what has to be done to prevent this from happening again? You have to act on intelligence that you have. It's much like Jeff, let's be simplistic that you hear about, you have information that a kid's got a gun and he may do, he may go to the school and start shooting people tomorrow. Well, what do you do with that? You start collecting intelligence. You talk to his classmates. You talk to teachers. You talk to the police resource officer assigned to the school. You figure out what the kid knows and doesn't know. And you may come up with enough either to arrest him or at least confront him long before the next day of school. Now, you know, that's a lot simplistic, a lot more simplistic than what I'm talking about. But you have to act on what you know, and you can't let people get in the way of what 
what needs to be done both tactically and otherwise if you're in law enforcement. That's what I think happened here. I think somebody got in the way, but we'll see. But we'll see. It just that's the only thing, as I said to you earlier, that makes sense to me. All right, Brad Garrett, crime and terrorism analyst for ABC News. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Take care. When we come back, legendary Washington Post reporter Dan Balls joins us to talk about the guardrails of democracy and what can be done to protect them when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. So could the attack on the U.S. Capitol happen again? Just how strong are the guardrails of democracy protecting it from an insurrection? Well, it seems like those guardrails held a year ago, but how strong are they now? Joining me now is Dan Balls, reporter for the Washington Post, and you wrote about this this past week, and how strong are those guardrails? Well, they're only as strong as, uh, you know, the American people want them to be strong. I mean, they're not, they're not laws per se. I mean, we obviously have laws that govern elections and govern counting of elections and things like that. Um, but the guardrails of democracy are, are kind of a shared commitment on the part of people in the country uh, to accept the norms of the way we operate politically. And one of those norms is that when an election is over and the votes are counted, somebody is declared the winner and the person who is the loser concedes defeat uh, and the country moves on. And I think that the, the, right now it is an open question uh, as to whether there is that kind of shared commitment to carry forward. That's that's the issue that we've been dealing with since the 2020 election uh, ended. And certainly in the year after the insurrection at the Capitol last year, what we've seen is a kind of a continuing attack uh, led by former President Trump on on the, those pillars of our of our democracy. And therefore, I think there are any number of people who worry that if this happened again, um, those guardrails might not hold. We've seen disputed elections in the past, whether it was the Al Gore, George W. Bush election in 2000, the election of 1800, uh, as I recall, had to go to the House of Representatives. What's different this time? One thing that's different, uh, if you look at the disputed 2000 election, um, that was bitterly fought and contested for 37 days during the recount in Florida and ultimately decided by a vote of the Supreme Court. Uh, and what did Al Gore do? Uh, he conceded in the most gracious possible way, almost immediately, and the country moved on. And we have not seen that in this case. I think another thing that's happened in the, I, I think it's hard to make comparisons to 1800 because the world is so different and our political system is different. But, but if you look again back uh, to 2000 uh, versus today, you know, the rise of social media and the fracturing, the further fracturing of our information sources and the degree to which cable news has become much more partisan, um, we, we have a much different environment. Uh, and it makes it much easier for people on one side, not just to disagree with people on the other side, but to actively be hostile toward them. Uh, and so I think it makes it harder for people to come together. And, and frankly, the, the third thing I would mention is that we have one of the two major parties, obviously the Republican Party, that is operating in ways that are anti-ethical to what we have become accustomed to in our two-party system. I mean, they have become the subsidiary of Trump, Inc., and a majority of them still believe or still say they believe that there were widespread ir uh, irregularities in the 2020 count 
and that President Biden was not legitimately elected. I mean, we've just not seen that kind of thing before. When did this start changing? Because America was headed down this very divided path well before Donald Trump was elected. Yeah, that's very true. We've been in the process of becoming more divided and more fractured for a couple of decades. And with each succeeding presidency, what we have seen is a a widening of that gap. You know, Donald Trump didn't create this situation, but I think there's no question that during the Trump presidency, things got materially worse. And in ways that we weren't divided before, we are now divided. And uh, Again, it's because uh, of the way Trump has consistently trampled on all kinds of norms and, and raised threats to democratic institutions, whether it's, you know, the Department of Justice or um, or the news media or whatever. So while you're right, it didn't start, you know, in the last few years or the last three or four years, it has become worse. And I think that's why people are as concerned as they are about the state of democracy. The other thing that just kind of befuddles me is that people don't even believe facts anymore. They believe what agrees with their own narrative. People have their own set of facts, and anything that contradicts with them, be damned. Yeah, and it's a terrible turn of events that we've gotten to that point. I mean, it used to be that that you would ask people about the state of the economy, and whether it was a Republican or a Democrat or an independent, they they tended to have a similar view of the state of the economy. There wasn't a partisan view of that. Then the question was, well, what do you do about it if things are not working? And and you had ideological differences about what was the right way to, to deal with an economy that was in trouble. Today, this is all colored by partisan allegiance. Um, what you believe depends very much on which party uh, you stand with. And, and therefore, as you say, we can't agree on the facts. We can't agree on a common sense or a common view of kind of the state of the world or the state of our, our democracy. Uh, and part of the reason for that is, you know, as I go back to, you know, the, the fracturing of information sources today, you know, most people probably get news and information from sources that reinforce their view of the world, as opposed to having a kind of a, a commonality of news sources and, and therefore facts and information that are shared across the political spectrum. So that, too, makes it much more difficult for the country to come together uh, in, a, in a moment of crisis or at a moment when there's a dispute or a disagreement. And it doesn't look like this is changing anytime soon. You, you write in your report for The Washington Post that Pentagon leaders, the military, is even concerned that in 2024 this could happen again and the military could be involved. What's going on there? Well, this comes from an op-ed piece that three retired uh, military officers wrote in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago. And, and their point was that um, we, should, we should very much be prepared that there could be another insurrection after 2024. Um, we could have a very close election again in 2024. We, we could have uh, disputes about that election. Um, and again, because of other things we've already talked about, there's concern that the losing side um, will not accept the outcome of that election. And these generals are basically warning that there could be another violent insurrection and that the military should be in a position to make sure that that does not succeed because their their sense is or their their observation is that that if this happens again, this could in fact lead to you know the, the civil war. 
you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's the same as we had back in the 1860s, but but a but a, a a war beyond which we are having right now. We're having a civil war of a sort right now, but they're warning about something that would be more violent and 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 more damaging to the to the country. And and the and the question then would be: Would you know? Would democracy, um, as we have come to know it and and live it, would it survive that? Do you think it would? I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, if we were sitting here three years ago, we we would not have expected to be having the conversation we're having today. So I, I don't know where this is going to lead. I, I talked to a, a historian recently, Tim Snyder, who's a, a historian at Yale University and has written extensively on some of these topics. And and his view is that democracy is something that is always fragile, uh, that it can't be taken for granted, and, and that it always needs protection, that it in some ways is not the natural state of things, and that, that it requires people to believe in it and to defend it. And he said, if we don't, he said, if we talk about the dangers now, the chances of them actually happening are probably less. If we don't talk about them, then the chances of them happening would be greater. All right, Dan Balls with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. On the first anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, President Biden railed against the rioters and slammed former President Trump, whom he says incited his supporters to violence. Those who stormed this Capitol and those who instigated and incited and those who called on them to do so held a dagger at the throat of America and American democracy. ABC's Elizabeth Schulze joins us from Washington, D.C. And Elizabeth, this was a very forceful and fiery speech from the president. It absolutely was. The president did not hesitate to go after former President Trump, holding him accountable for this dark day in history one year ago marking the insurrection of January 6th. The president recounted those dark images that we all saw, the rioters breaching the building as Congress was trying to certify the election results. And the president said, make no mistake, this is former President Trump's doing, and it's time that we stand up to this. In fact, our democracy is on the line. This really was one of the strongest and most forceful speeches against Trump that we have seen from Biden. It's one that many congressional Democrats here have been waiting to hear They've been wanting Biden to come out strongly like this to get their base motivated, but also to show that they they understand that Trump needs to be held accountable. And this really is what the president did today in this speech. Nancy Pelosi led lawmakers in a moment of silence today. And Republican Liz Cheney was one of the few members of her party who attended that moment of silence. And she came down hard on her GOP colleagues, too. She absolutely did. You know, Liz Cheney has been such an outspoken critic of former President Trump in the past few months, but she is really one of the few Republicans who has been. And she said that it's time for more people to speak up. Of course, we've not seen leadership of the Republican Party participating in today's events marking January 6th. They say the Democrats are politicizing this day and many are just not attending or anywhere near the Capitol at all, for that matter. And we also saw that Liz Cheney was there with her father, the former Vice President Dick Cheney. Saying, who also said that he's embarrassed by Republican leadership right now, that they need to remember that this was a historic day, that it shouldn't be normal proceedings for an insurrection to happen at the U.S. Capitol. And it's something that we need to remember and learn from going forward. What's the atmosphere like there at the Capitol today? 
Yes, you know, it is so strikingly different from obviously what it was like a year ago. You know, it's quiet, almost eerily so here. The halls are, are pretty empty. We have some of these proceedings going on, but not even all lawmakers are here right now. You know, a lot of this is ceremonial versus order of business. And there's a strong police presence just in the hallways outside. You know, it's hard to kind of get through the Capitol anytime now without running into Capitol Police. And it's clear that a lot of people who were here and who are here today are reliving these moments. They're, it's still very fresh in their minds. And we, I, I think it's important for us to remember it wasn't just the lawmakers who had to hide and flee. There were staff here at the Capitol who also faced this very harrowing experience. And for many of them, it is still very fresh. Are we hearing anything from former President Trump today? The former president is unsurprisingly out with some pretty scathing statements. But really what he's doing, bottom line, is repeating his lies about the election. He says that this is all a sideshow to the elect the election that was rigged. You know, really absolutely no indication from former President Trump that anything would change his mind or change his tune. And that's really what's been the problem for Republicans is that they are trying to stay in former President Trump's good graces. So they're trying to, to keep him happy. And that has meant basically not speaking out against January 6th. You know, we are seeing the reality that Republicans and Democrats are living in two different realities, not just on their politics, but now and also their their rewriting of history when it comes to January 6th. ABC's Elizabeth Schulze. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. That's Como's Elisa Jaffe. When we come back, some Republican leaders are condemning members of their own party. And we'll hear from one state lawmaker who is still pushing the claim that the election was stolen when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Now, some state lawmakers are condemning the attack on the U.S. Capitol on the first anniversary of the insurrection. In fact, State House Republican leader J.T. Wilcox says the threat of political violence needs to end. This will destroy us all unless we're willing to uh, use whatever influence that we have. Say that's not the way we do things here. And Senate Democratic leader Andy Billig says misinformation is just as big of a problem. Those attacks were an attack uh, on our country, an attack on our democracy, and they were based on a lie about election fraud. However, several Republican state lawmakers still believe the election was stolen. Republicans Brad Clippert of Kennewick, Vicki Kraft of Vancouver, and Robert Sutherland of Granite Falls all attended a symposium from MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell that pushed false claims of election fraud. Joining us now is State Representative Brad Clippert to explain why he, at least, attended that event. I went to that uh, cyber symposium on a fact-finding mission. Um, There are many, many people in Washington State and across the United States who uh, speculate that the truth did not come out in our 2020 election, and they want desperately to have the truth. And so I will go to any place, talk to anyone. I will leave no rock unturned that uh, is available to me to gather the facts about what happened in the 2020 election. And when this uh, cyber symposium was brought to my attention, I saw that as a place that I could go to find the facts about the 2020 elections or to seek to find the facts uh, for the citizens of Washington State. So that's when I contacted our state legislature and asked them if they'd authorize that trip to do that. And they said, yes, uh, since you're going there on behalf of the citizens to try to find the facts about the 2020 elections, then that's 
was authorized. How much did it cost to travel there for you? I, I, I saw that there is a limit to something like $9,000 per year or something like that. Is that correct? I apologize to you. I do not know the answer to that question. Not because I don't choose to answer it, simply because, truthfully, I don't know. Um, I am a person who has three jobs, and uh, uh, there are other people who handle that for me. I simply brought forward uh, to our staff in Olympia the request to attend that cyber symposium and ask that it be pre-authorized. They reviewed it and said, yes, it's within your legislative duty. I think that it's important that the citizens of Washington State and of the United States of America are able to find out what exactly happened in the 2020 elections. Because if we do not have secure borders around our nation, and if we do not have free and fair elections where the citizens can cast their vote and believe that their vote is going to count and that there won't be fraudulent activity taking place that would overturn that, um, we don't have a nation. So our citizens want there to be secure elections, and I, as their elected one of their elected officials, and willing to do whatever I need to do to help ensure that we have secure elections so that the truth comes out in the election process. You're running for Congress. Uh, you're challenging Dan Newhouse largely over his uh, vote to impeach President Trump. Do you see a political upside to attending things like this and, and to kind of aligning yourself with the Trump wing of the party, the Mike Lindells, that sort of thing? You know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to answer that question for you honestly. I've been um, elected to seven terms as a state legislator, and when people refer to me as a politician, um, they, they can use that word if they so choose, but I hate the thought of being uh, called a politician because to me, a politician will tell you whatever they think you want to hear so that you will, that you will get their vote. But I want to be a leader as an elected government official, and so that's, what I, that's why I went to South Dakota to that cyber symposium to seek and find out the facts. And, and I will, like I said, I'll leave no stone unturned. If I know somewhere else, I can uh, find out the facts so that we have proper, fair, and honest election processes for our citizens of the United States of America. I'll do it. I did not go there for political purposes. I went there seeking the facts uh, for the citizens of Washington State. Now, in that interview, I did not want to get into a back and forth about the claims of election fraud. Why? Well, simply put, there has been no evidence presented of widespread voter fraud, much less fraud that was a coordinated effort to swing the election in favor of Joe Biden. Election officials, including those that were part of the Trump administration, have all said the 2020 election was the most secure election in history. And as near as we can tell, almost every lawsuit that has made claims of election fraud has been dismissed. Those are the facts, and they are not debatable, despite what some may believe. Meanwhile, Governor Jay Inslee says lying about election results should have consequences, and he's proposing legislation to stop it. Como 4's Keith Eldridge reports it came on the one-year anniversary of the governor's mansion being attacked by protesters. We've now learned that the governor was inside and had to be rushed to a secure location. That's because people who were protesting the election outcome as a fraud had breached the gates to the mansion, made it all the way to the front door. Troopers ordered the governor to a safe room inside. I don't argue with them in those circumstances, so I followed them to the safe room and put on a flak jacket at their request and, uh, and uh, 
things transpired. Democratic House Speaker Lori Jenkins says she watched the demonstrations from her office at the Capitol. These incidents were fueled. They were absolutely fueled by misinformation. The governor says laws need to be changed to prevent that with elected officials and candidates. This needs to be made illegal. Accordingly, I will uh, support legislation this year to make it a, a misdemeanor, gross misdemeanor, to in fact lie about these election results without without any basis. I've seen it and I've read it. I had to read it because I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Republican State Representative Jim Wall says he is not disputing the outcome of the election, but says the governor is going too far. This runs against the foundational values of this country and this state. And Mr. Inslee should be ashamed of what he said. And he should walk it back. Keith Eldridge, come on news. Now, obviously, this debate will continue. Still to come, a change at the King County Prosecutor's Office when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. On Friday, a surprise announcement from King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg. After serving since 2007, he announced that this will be his final term in office, as he will not seek re-election this fall. Here is some of the message he posted to YouTube. You know, 2022 marks my 37th year as a member of this office, the 15th as the elected prosecuting attorney. And in many ways, this is the most important year of my service, with our team facing multiple challenges due to the pandemic. It will also be my last year with the office. After four terms, I've decided not to seek re-election this year. You know, serving in this office has been an extraordinary privilege for me, and it's the best job I could ever have. But it's not the only thing I ever want to do with my life. I've been a part of the prosecuting attorney's office since I was a Rule 9 intern at juvenile court in 1984. The next year I was hired as a deputy prosecuting attorney and the amazing journey began for me. After five years as a criminal deputy trying all types of cases, in 1990 I was appointed to be chief of staff by then prosecuting attorney Norm Mailing. You know, Norm took a chance on me. I was 30 years old. We were nothing alike. He was the dairy farmer from Acme. I was the bass player from Burien. Norm taught me so much about the role of the prosecuting attorney and also just about being a decent human being. Now, for some people in the office today, Norm is a legendary figure, the kind of person they name courthouses after. But for me and other old-timers in the office, we remember Norm as a gentle and thoughtful and principled man, an eternal optimist, and a man who suffered so publicly after his daughter Karen was killed in a sledding accident in 1989. He taught us all how to live after life's toughest blow. Working with Norm will always be the highlight of my career, and his mentorship prepared me to take over upon his death. And his death in office at the age of 68 is also a lesson that I take as I reflect on how to spend my finite years. You know, all the smart people I've ever known will take a moment in a situation like this and thank their partner because a career is a shared experience. I met Linda Norman on the first day of law school in 1982. We got married two weeks after the bar exam. We've raised two wonderful children while each pursuing meaningful legal careers. She's a leader in the legal team at Microsoft and the Xbox General Counsel, which she calls the Department of Fun. We've been there for each other throughout this whole time, and spending time at home with Linda during the COVID period has convinced me that home is where I want to be. Now, there will be time for further reminiscence and reflections on how much has changed since 1985, how much remains to be changed in the criminal justice system, and I have 358 days left in my term. So what now? Well, 
I'm determined to finish well. Over the next 12 months, we will cement the gains and the innovations and the adaptations from the last 15 years. And we'll also look for the positive lessons that we have learned during this time of COVID. You know, when the pandemic started, we were the first in our state and one of the first offices in the nation to have a 100% remote domestic violence protection order service. That meant that people who were trapped at home with abusers no longer needed to physically come down to the courthouse to get court-ordered protection. We were also one of the first in the state and one of the first in the nation to create a data dashboard revealing in great detail our work, our priorities, and the challenges that await. And we make informed decisions based on this data. It's right there on the front page of our office website for anyone to see. We're also launching this year new and innovative community partnerships and diversion programs with trusted community nonprofit organizations that are here to help victims of crime as well as the people who have caused the harm. And I'm encouraged by the support of the county executive and the county council for our community-based diversion programs. They have the goals of interrupting violence, of decreasing crime, and creating community connections that are part of accountability. Now we've done all of this while also filing roughly 25 to 30 felony cases every day. These are the most serious crimes that occur in King County, murders and assaults, armed robbery, residential burglary, sexual assaults, child abuse, among many others. You know, most of our cases never make the news, but we're in court every day, trying jury trials, filing serious violent crimes, and resolving cases. During the COVID period, things have slowed, but have never stopped. And today, many of our criminal division team members are carrying extraordinary caseloads. It will take time, it will take talent, it will take additional resources, but we will get through and we will meet this challenge. Now, for decades, Satterberg was a Republican, much like Norm Mailing before him. But in 2017, he changed parties before he ran for another term. Political affiliation aside, Satterberg has been criticized for how he has handled low-level and repeat offenders, particularly in the city of Seattle. His detractors say he will kick many of those cases down to municipal court, overwhelming the system. We'll have more on his legacy and impact and those criticisms in the coming weeks. But still to come this week, a new direction at Seattle City Hall when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally, this past week, Seattle got a new mayor, and it means a change in direction for Seattle City Hall. For years, Seattle has been led not only by Democrats, but by progressives, those on the far left of the political spectrum. But in the 2021 elections, voters decided to take a different path. Nearly all of the far left candidates were defeated in favor of more moderate ones none more clearly than in the race for Seattle mayor. Lorena Gonzalez, who had been the face of the city council as its president, campaigned as an ultra-liberal. But it was Bruce Harrell, the former city council president and more moderate candidate, who ultimately won. But make no mistake, Harrell is anything but a conservative. Starting today, we will lead this city with an obsession with excellence and kindness. Inclusion and hope. We'll balance optimism and we will reject these attitudes of fear. This from his swearing-in ceremony on Tuesday. And he took note that it was his approach to the homeless crisis that seemed to resonate with most voters. We will be intolerant, not of the people who are unhoused, 
but the conditions that caused them to be unhoused. During the campaign, Harrell adopted the Compassion Seattle platform, which aims to build thousands of units of emergency and supportive housing and keep public spaces clear of homeless encampments. The problem with what to do about those encampments was the clearest difference in the campaign, with Gonzalez vowing to leave them alone, while Harold promised to clean them up. But it wasn't the only issue that Harold plans to address now that he's taken office. Today begins our journey to bring new energy and new resources to address homelessness and public safety and gun violence and climate change. But his first and likely his biggest decision will be whom to hire as the next police chief. A safe city employs the right kind of police officer and the right number of police officers. Whoever gets the job will have to deal with the staffing crisis within the Seattle Police Department and policies and changes that must be approved by a federal judge. And adding to the shifting political sands at City Hall is the election of a moderate Democrat in Sarah Nelson to the City Council, a Republican in Ann Davison as City Attorney, and the selection of Deborah Juarez as the new council president. All of this making 2021 and 2022 likely to see some of the most significant changes in Seattle politics in some time. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and many more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.